Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a kind of a surprise to me episode on uh, for you guys today. Yeah. So we had our awesome episode last week about James Dean and the- Is icon- James Dean like the alternate ego of James Dean? I tried to say James. No, Did they come out as James? James Dean. Like James, James Addiction. Dean. <laughs> James Little known Dean. sister to James Dean. We've got a, we really- <laughs> wow. we, Long lost we dug up a deep one for you today. <laughs> no, if you haven't checked out last week's episode of James Dean, his history, his history with motorsport racing, and the curse of his 550 Spider. Yes. That he notoriously died while driving. So we released this episode, and I got a note from a listener saying, hey, you guys should really talk to this guy, Lee Raskin who is kind of the guy. He's the authority on James Dean and the 550 Spider. And Porsche in general, right? I mean, just He's a Porsche historian, yeah. Um, And so I reached out to him, and he's like, yeah, I actually had a couple of your listeners reach out to me as well. Okay, cool. So it was very fitting. Did he say what he thought of our episode? Uh, Yes, he said- How many many times were you wrong? A lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I wanted to have him on here. He did give us kudos for going- in in depth with the type uh, the type 547 engine, the yeah. Berman 4 cam. Yep. He liked that. But I, still, he, I want to remind everybody, go back and listen to our best four-cylinder engines of all time. We yes. Really, I mean, we spent like half an hour on, on, that, that, motor. on that motor. It's super interesting. Yes. Uh, but no, I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts and talk to you because you are the guy. And he goes, I would love to do that. And I'd like to sit the story straight because- okay. Much of, quote, the curse is all made up. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk to Lee in a moment, and I'm going to go down the elements, case by case, of everything that was attributed to the curse. Okay. And he is going to give us the real story. I am excited for this. Yeah. So Lee Raskin, he's a Porsche historian. Like I said, the foremost expert on James Dean. He's also the author of James Dean on the Road to Salinas and James Dean at Speed, as well as the Porsche Speedster Type 540, the quintessential sports car. 540? That's what, yeah. I thought I don't it was know. 550. Yeah, the book is 540. Okay. See? I don't know. We're going to have yeah, to read the book, gonna, Chris. Yeah, find out. So before we get into our conversation with Lee, though, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry, there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. All right, Jake. Yes. Did you know that we're having a film festival? We are. At the rally? Yes. Which has been announced? Yes. Yes. So the rally is where? 
in Idaho. Idaho, we can finally the say great it. Potato State. I can finally say it. And I just want to let everybody know to head over to the website and submit films that you like that were produced in the last yes. year or two. Overcrestproductions.com. Yep, you can go to overcrestproductions.com. We're giving away $1,000 to five different filmmakers for being nominated at the Overcrest Film Fest this year. So head over to overcrestproductions.com and submit your favorite films or spread the word on this. We would really appreciate you letting your friends that are filmmakers know. They might know somebody that would like to submit something and get recognized for their great work now question yes do we want to get like of course we're going to so this is a hypothetical question (laughs) do we want to ruin or potentially change because this is this is on record where are you going where are you going with this are we go we're going to change the enigma Uh of this story forever Oh, with James Dean. Yes. I know. You know, do we want I'm a little to, sad you know what I mean? the mystique and the whole lore of it the, may be the ruined. The truth needs to be known. The truth needs yes, to be known. It, does. It, it must. The truth. I, I, as much as I say we aim for entertainment on this show over factual information, I do think it'll be good to get the real story. Is that you're out for being wrong oh, all the time? time. <laughs> yep. That's, that's what I tell people. I told Lee that on the phone conversation when he's like, all right, I'll check out the episode. I was like. Just know I aim for entertainment value over factual information. I do my best, but let's be real. So, no, it'll be great. And he, this guy, as you'll find out, has a lot of awesome stories. And it's kind of the inside scoop on a lot of stuff. I'm really looking forward to it. All right, let's get on the phone with Lee. Hi, Jake. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? Good. You're right on time. Well, we try to be punctual. I also have That's Chris good. on the line here. Hey, how's it Hi, going? Chris. I'm the other half of Overcrest. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Yeah, I heard about you uh, through um, through some of my Porsche friends. I have a Porsche friend in uh, Florida, and he told me he watched the podcast. He listened to the podcast and then contacted you. So maybe that's how you got to me through him. Yeah, it's possible. We had a couple of people, you know, the network's getting pretty big now. So we've, you know, had a couple of people send us, hey, you should talk to this guy. And and I'm what I'm most interested in is how Jake was wrong <laughs> with everything that he said. So that's for me, I'm always I'm always down for for Jake to look unprepared and dumb. So that's always my my goal. Well, you're actually you're a pretty good tag team. I mean, I, I listened to uh his first time. I had heard about you, but, um, you know, I just uh, wish I had more time in my life, you know, to, um, you know, to tune in. But you, you were really good together, and I realized that you really are personal files, you know. Sure. And, and so to compliment you um, is, uh, you know, is you're deserving of that because I, I've done a lot of podcasts, and more recently – mainly because of this transmission that was sold this transaxle. Yep. But, but, you know, talking with individuals, I mean, they can't get the two syllable word to start with, but <laughs> they just, just didn't do any, you know, any fact checking. Right. And, um, but I have to tell you, there, there wasn't a day that goes by in my life, um, for the past, I'd say 30 years that I'm not involved with James Dean, regardless of what I'm doing. And I'm sort of retired. I was a lawyer for uh, for a large trust company uh, right out of law school. And then and, and that was my first career. My second career was I was an administrative uh, legal officer for a, a wealth management firm. And then I got involved in amusements. So 
in between working and making a living, there's, you know, there's always been James Dean as my co-pilot. Why? It's really amazing. Where did that come from? Where, what was the inception of that? Well, this, so we can get into this. This is really a good story. And I think that your, um, I think your audience will appreciate it. Um, I grew up not too far from you in Omaha, Nebraska. And, uh, during the fifties, um, James Dean became popular in New York doing live TV uh, for the various uh, shows. There was uh, G Theater, Schlitz Theater, uh, CBS Theater, and he did 30-minute uh, live broadcasts. And most of them were, you know, were plays, in effect. So what was TV like back then? So when you're watching James Dean on TV and you're seeing this, what kind of other programming do you have to choose from? Like what, what is television like at this time? Well, first of all, uh, you had one TV set. It was black and white. Uh, I had seen color TV, but we didn't own one. And there were in Omaha, there were three stations. Omaha had about 400,000 people then. But it was no different than a larger city, you know, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. They had three stations or four stations, major stations, ABC, NBC, CBS. That was it. Hmm. There was no Fox News or Fox Channel, and certainly there wasn't any cable TV. So you, you know, you had a TV set and you had an antenna, either an antenna in the house or you had it affixed to your chimney if you had one and um re and tv reception was very poor it was just depended on where you lived which is not so different from driving you know with a cell phone and you know in in between two towers and you lose your contact so tv was basically 30 minute shows live tv through the through the evening you know after dinner time and then there were program shows um, you know, during the, you know, during the morning, there was news and very little went on, you know, during the, uh, during the daylight hours that people were working during the week, you know, Saturday, there were a ton of kids shows, you know, and they were Howdy Doody and Captain Midnight and Flurry and, uh, you know, some cowboy shows. There was one show that actually had a Porsche in it. And it was, uh, it was a, a British detective. He had one, one arm. And I was always amazed that he could drive his Porsche <laughs> by, with his left hand, you know, across his, you know, across his body to shift. And he was pretty good at that. And that's really where I started to get involved with sports cars. But the real story about James Dean emerges because my sister and her friends were teenagers or pre-teenagers. And they heard about James Dean. Of course, he was, you know, starring on live TV and she won out. In, the, in other words, we had a family of four, one TV set, <laughs> but my sister put on a big act and we all had to watch James Dean. So it's not that I was so interested in James Dean back then because I was 10 years old. It, it later it came out later that um, in 1953, living in Omaha, next to the Offutt Air Force Base, General Curtis LeMay started what was became the SCCA, and he had uh, sports car races at the Air Force bases, at all of them, and uh, Chanute in Illinois, and Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, 
And uh, so I begged my father and we went to the sports car races in 1953. They were held over the July 4th weekend. And I, I just was like, you know, over the moon. I mean, I was seeing cars that I had never seen before because they were foreign cars. Jaguars and Morgans. How foreign Porsches. were they? Did you even know they existed? Because if you think no, about no, but I, no, I, I, I sort of did because I had seen some magazines besides sure. Hot Rod magazine. I had seen some sports car magazines, and I had a friend that was a little bit older, and his father was into car collecting, so he had all the magazines. And then around night, well, a little bit later, we, you know, we really got involved in go karts, which you know was was where a lot of a lot of individuals got started in racing but just not to get ahead of myself so in 1953 and 54 i went to the off at air force base races in 1953 um we had tickets my i asked my father he had a grocery store and i think through wonder bread they were giving away tickets and so we were sort of vips of a sort and we got to get into the you know the pit area and after the race, my father said, go over to, to those two men over there and take this program. And he had a ballpoint pen. He gave it to me and he said, get their autograph. And I and I didn't know what an autograph was. He said, get their signature. So he sort of coaxed me over there. And, uh, you know, they were being interviewed and uh, I didn't know who they were. Well, it's a lot <laughs> harder a turn- to say no to a kid than an adult, I think, was the plan there. <laughs> well, they they loved me because I was like the only kid with a ballpoint pen. Sure. And. And so who were they? Well, the, the person that won was kind of a regional racer. He was very young, and he won in a Jaguar C-Jag. His name was Mastin Gregory. And then the person that came behind him, and it was a nose-to-tail race, was a guy in bib overalls, a real tall guy with a cowboy hat, and his name was Carol Shelby. Mm-hmm. And I, I still have those are my first two autographs of hundreds that I've collected over the years. I still have the program that was sold for a quarter. So that was the beginning of my, you know, venture into sports car racing. And then, uh, you know, two years later in 1955, James Dean died. And, you know, I remember the newspaper articles on the front page of the Omaha World Herald. Uh, actor killed in car crash. And then there was a picture of the Porsche, you know, all mangled up. And I never forgot that. And then my sister and her girlfriends were in hysterics, you know, because he, he was dead. James Dean was dead. That was, you know, that was their, they almost had a fan club going. So she created a shrine in her bedroom. My sister, mm-hmm. name was Laney. And she bought all these fan, you know, Hollywood fan magazines and she cut them out and she put all the pictures from floor to ceiling in her in her room. It was the James Dean Memorial Shrine. And I used to, and on good behavior, she would let me in and I would read the articles. But I was always fascinated with the car photos. And there weren't too many of them. I'd say about a half a dozen. Did you know what kind and of car it was? Did you have like well, a clue of like that, that was special or anything like that? You know, I knew they were Porsches, and I knew that I had I, the interesting thing at Offit in 53 and 54, the Speedster had not been introduced. It came out in 1950, late in 54, November. So I saw Porsche Coupes, and, I, and maybe I saw a convertible or a Roadster, but I didn't see the Speedster, and I certainly didn't see a 550. 
But by that time, I was spending my weekly allowance of a quarter, 50 cents, and I was buying car magazines. So, um, you know, I had Sports Car Illustrated, Sports Car uh, Motorsports from from England. And, uh, the you know, I'd go up to the local drugstore and I knew when they all came in. And, you know, I, and I always kept those magazines. I never trashed them. I kept them and kept them and kept them. And so that's I'm trying that to think like beginning. if the, like comparing like finding about cars today is very, very easy. And I'm just thinking about the scarcity of this stuff for you. You see it in the magazine. That's the only place you might ever see anything like that. So the scarcity of it and just having the one printed image or, you know, maybe an article about a certain car might be some of the only exposure as a young kid that you would ever get to that. So seeing or having a chance to see or do anything with some of these cars would be a lot more special than it is today. Oh, there's no question. And so and you you have to you know, you can't take this out of context. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. That was, uh, you know, that wasn't a major city. They were, uh, but my best friend's family owned Playland Park. So that was an amusement park in Council Bluffs, Iowa, just across the Missouri uh, River from Omaha. And they had a quarter mile track, had a half mile track. So they had stock car racing. So being my best friend, I always got invited on Friday night, Saturday night, and we sat in the, you know, in the VIP section and I watched stock stock car racing. So I got involved in stock car racing, which turned into NASCAR racing, early NASCAR racing. And um, then when I was 13, I, uh, I coaxed my father into letting me buy a, we would call today a mini cycle. It's called a doodle bug. It was made in Iowa, Hiawatha doodle bug. It's really interesting. It powered by two and a half horsepower Clinton engine and had brakes. And, um, and so it was not illegal in Omaha to drive that on the street. I mean, if you, you know, went to a larger city, you'd have to be 16 and get a driver's license. But that thing I, looked, I, I looked this thing up. It looks like, it looks like the Ferrari, Pina Farina version of a of a mini bike. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, Cushman Cushman motors scooters were made in Lincoln, Nebraska, so uh-huh. you know they were fairly common. But but a Cushman was you know big stuff, and, right? Uh, too much for a thirteen year old. So this Hiawatha was made in forty after the war, forty seven, forty eight. It's, it's cool interesting looking. on e, on eBay. They're selling for uh, they're probably selling for about two grand now. Sure. I bought it for a hundred hundred a quarter. And they were hand-me-downs, you know, as soon as somebody got a driver's license at 16, they sold their doodle bug. Anyway, I, I had this doodle bug and I would drive it all over. So I was really into stuff, you know, uh, normally if you didn't have a motor scooter when you were 12, 13 years old, you took playing cards with clothespins and (laughs) put them on the back of your bicycle and made noise. Right. I mean, I did that too, but I was way ahead of, you know, everyone else. So James Dean's dad, there were certainly wasn't a Porsche dealer in Omaha and there wasn't a Porsche dealer till 1968. The Chevrolet dealer became the Porsche dealer there. Um, However, um, through a tragic circumstance, um, I lost my, this is coincidental to you. 
I lost my mother and grandmother in a plane crash in Mason City, Iowa. They were flying to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Hmm. And uh, they got caught in a thunderstorm and the plane crashed in a cornfield um, in the north of Mason City. And uh, so my father, who was born in Baltimore, Washington, grew up in Washington. We moved back from Omaha, which was my mother's family, to Washington and Baltimore. So we moved to Baltimore, which was good fortune for me because the Marlboro Speedway was about an hour away where they were racing sports cars. And uh, although I was interested in the Baltimore Orioles and the Baltimore Colts, I used to go to the races, you know, as a teenager. And then I really got involved with Porsches and met Bruce Jennings, who was a great, great Porsche driver, won three national championships in Porsche Carrera Speedsters. And that's and by the time I was 18, I had my first used Porsche. Um, what, most what, of my what was friends. What, what'd you get? Oh, so, um, well, I had uh, $1,800 and I bought a used 1960 B Coupe. Yes, it was uh, canary yellow with black interior. And I, and I took that to college. I, I was like, I went to school on a track scholarship at Alabama. I had the only Porsche on campus for a long time. <laughs> I still think it's important to, to put in context of owning a German car in the 50s. Well, let me, let me just... Right? I mean, know, that's not... I mean, some people would probably think you're a bad person for buying a German car back then. Well, and I was Jewish. So my father oh. said to me, you know, it's a German car. And I said, but they were Austrian, Dad. You know, he said, you know, they made tanks for... for the Nazi regime, I said they were forced to. Yeah. I mean, I, I won out. He, I mean, he really was, my father was really great. I had motor scooters, motorbikes, motorcycles, and, you know, and I traded in a, you know, two-door Ford mainliner for a used Porsche, you know, for $1,800. And that was the beginning of, you know, of the, that was the beginning of Porsche. Was and, it a desirable know, just, car back then? Was that something that... You know, a regular person would have seen driving around town and going, ooh, ah, ooh, look at that thing. It, when you saw another Porsche and you blinked your lights to them, you had goosebumps. Yeah, it but what about like, other people, just like regular folks, you know, that are driving around in a Bel Air or something like that? You know, what are they thinking of your of your car? Um, they, th they didn't think that I was odd. They thought I was cool, actually. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to get a vibe. Uh, you know, I, for... had a, I had a Yamaha motorcycle. I mean, parents were going to let their kid have a motorcycle. I, I did. I, I commuted to high school 15 miles each way every day, except through the snow. I was really, you know, I, I have to thank my dad for letting me do those things, um, you know, without a helmet on, too. <laughs> so, how do you, where's this, where's this converge into, into this, uh, you know, I don't I would almost call it like an obsession with James Dean and, and, and his life and what happened. Well, looking back, uh, it was an obsession, except I didn't realize it. I, I, I certainly was emulating James Dean. I had a you know motorbike like he had a motorbike in high school. I had a Porsche before he had a Porsche. He was racing before I was. Um, 
I didn't think that I looked like James Dean. I didn't act like James Dean. I kind of didn't even talk about James Dean. Uh, but I was definitely into sports cars. I went to the, all the races. I couldn't wait to be 21 to, you know, get a competition license. But before, and, and, and actually, I wound up crowing for Bruce Jennings, my hero, my Porsche hero, at all the big races at Sebring and Watkins Glen. And, um, you know, that was just a tremendous opportunity to, to, to meet everybody. I mean, everybody came to Sebring, you know, all the, all the European drivers. I met them all, Phil Hill, Sterling Moss, you know, the whole Porsche team, you know, all of them, Hans Hermann, Jean Barra. Sure, I mean, sure. I knew everything. I knew the, you know, I knew the 356, the 550, and then into the 70s, you know, all of a sudden Porsche became the giant killer with the 900 series, you know, the right. 908s, 917s, just took, you know, just took everything by storm. And so that became, that became my hobby of, of sorts, um, aside from, you know, liking baseball and football. Uh, I had very few friends other than in the Porsche club that really understood what my passion for motorsports was all about. Yeah. And Lee, you certainly had moved on then to become kind of the authority on James Dean's motorsport career and vehicle history. And I really want to have you kind of clear up some of the misinformation of the James Dean story. And you kind of told me that much of the info out there is just plain made up. It is. And it, it, and it doesn't happen. It didn't happen at one time. It happened. You got to remember James Dean died in 1955. And, uh, and through the circumstances of his uh, wrecked car, how he died and, you know, the, the real events of the car, which I'll go through that created the, really the legacy of James Dean aside from, being an actor and he was a good actor in the three movies, but it was the combination. And I just want to mention one thing that will really set the tone of this conversation. If James Dean hadn't been driving that Porsche when the accident happened, if that car had been on the trailer being towed by his Ford station wagon, he had a country squire and the country squire, one Ford hits another Ford and he died. But that would have been plain vanilla, but it wasn't. It was because he was killed in a Porsche. And the fact that Porsche survived through all these years where a lot of motorsport makes or marks did not. A lot of British cars went by the wayside, but Porsche survived. And then as you started to look more at the James Dean, you said, you know, he was like the first celebrity, Hollywood celebrity to be on the podium in a Porsche in the, in the early fifties, way before Steve McQueen, way before Paul Newman. And, um, and he actually had back to back wins, you know, uh, he was on the podium twice. He only had three races. Um, and he was uh, a good driver, but not a great driver. He was reckless. And mm -hmm. I think it, part of that, part of that was because he was nearsighted. He was myopic. He had no lateral vision. It's interesting. I'm myopic. I, I know what it's like. And I used to race with contact lenses because if you're wearing glasses. You, know, if you don't turn your head and you can't turn your head when you're belted in. 
you have very little vision to your right and to your left. You, you know, when somebody's passing you or passing them. So it's really interesting. I didn't realize, and I didn't think about James Dean and the racing until later on in my life. And I said, you know, I have a lot, there's a lot of similarities. Dean lost his mother at nine. And so did I, we both had motor scooters. We both had Porsches. We both raced. Um, I wasn't an actor, but I certainly would have been involved in acting and public speaking all my life. And far better looking, I imagine. <laughs> no, James Dean was a great looking guy. I mean, he, he, he appealed to, you know, he appealed to everyone. Sure. Because that was his persona. He was interested in everyone and he could play the role. He could play the role. So uh, he, go ahead. Uh, what I want to really get into, though, is kind of the lore of the curse of this 515 Little Bastard. And it's something, you know, we, we expounded on last week. But I really would like to go through case by case and have you explain or perhaps dismiss these instances that kind of sure. gave the car this legend. So sure. first we talked about Alex Guinness, who many yeah. may know was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right. He had this dire warning for Dean seven days prior to the accident saying, mark my words, you're going to die in seven days in that car. What, was that made up? No. No, and that's, and, 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 and you know, uh, the hair of my arm is standing up because it, it, is, it is an amazing story, and it's the real story compared to everything else. So let me set the tone. James Dean, um, on impulse, bought the spider. He had ordered a Lotus uh, uh, from uh, Jay Chamberlain, who had a little shop next to Warner Brothers in Burbank. He had ordered it in June, put down a deposit. Now, Colin Chapman was making Lotus, and they were handmade, you know, one at a time. And he actually was looking at a Lotus Mark 8, V-I-I. D-I-I-I. And uh, by the time it would have gone into production, they were already into the Lotus 9 IX. And so they, like a lot of British cars, like Morgans, they came without engines. You, you know, you could put anything you wanted into the Lotus. Same thing with a, um, uh, well, let's see, like an Elva. Elva didn't have engines either. So anyway, James Dean decided he was going to put an Offy engine in there. He was familiar with the Offy because the Offies ran at Indianapolis, and he lived, you know, about an hour north of Indianapolis. So and by Offy, you mean Offenhauser? Offenhauser, yes. and Offenhausers were made in Los Angeles, of all places. So it was a small block V8, and um, he could have put a Coventry Climax in there or a Bristol engine. He chose the Offy, and I have some real documentation. And in my book, I actually have a letter through his agent where they put down a deposit for the car. They found an engine, they put it down a deposit for that. But like everything else in the UK, it never got built on time. <laughs> and so James Dean would have been prohibited from racing by George Stevens, who was the then director of giant. He, he didn't like racing at all. Um, and so he was forbid to race at all during the filming of Giant, which took place from uh, June of 1955 through practically the time of his death in September. So prior to that, James Dean had 
it was funny because you had talked about blowing a piston and how do you blow a piston? Well, actually you burn the piston. Okay. It's, and uh, so what, what happened there was he overrepped the engine, he ran off course, hit some hay, downshifted. Maybe he uh, overrepped at that point, probably went from fourth to third. It's too much. And he, you know, went over the red line and the engine burned a piston. And uh, so he was, he had to get the car repaired. So he didn't have a car in the first place. But while I was in uh, Texas filming Giant, the car was rebuilt by his mechanic, Rolf Witterick, and it was ready for him. But he wanted something faster. It's interesting. He missed all these races because he was filming. So if you can imagine that the three of us are all racing, you know, together every weekend, but I can't race because I'm filming. Well, you're, you know, you're getting seat time. I'm not. You're getting experience on the course. I'm not. So he said, well, I need something faster. Actually, that was just an escape. He needed more seat time, not faster. (laughs) So he tried to buy the 550 and there weren't any available. There were five that were going to be sent to John Von Neumann's competition motors, but they were already pre-sold. So here we are in September. His best friend, Lou Bracker, happens to drive by Competition Motors and sees a spider in the one-room showroom that they have, immediately calls James Dean on September the 18th or 19th, says there's a spider in Von Neumann's window. The next day, James Dean went down there and convinced uh, John Von Neumann to sell him the car. Someone had backed out of the deal. So all the cars had been pre-sold. Somebody backed out. The car was available, $6,800. James Dean's Speedster was traded in for three grand. He needed 3,800. He took the advance on his film from Giant through his agent, had the money on the 21st and bought the car on the condition that the mechanic, Rolf Witterich, who came over from Germany for the purpose of promoting racing, he was a factory-trained Carrera engine mechanic, he would go with James Dean for at every event and that and so john von newman saw the magnet the he was the magnet of james dean you know if, if james dean can win in this car think about all the great publicity that'll come to competition motors because of james dean the movie star so that was a good marketing ploy except it didn't work out he had the car for nine days and and died okay so here's what happened uh, it's unclear whether Alec Guinness saw him on Tuesday or Wednesday night. Nobody's really sure, but it was just a few days before he was going to leave for Salinas. And it was just a three few days after he purchased the car. They're at the Villa Capri restaurant, Jimmy's favorite restaurant in North Hollywood. And he's having dinner with, um, Bracker, and it's the first time that he uh, had the car, the new Spider, and they parked it. You know how they, in California they park all the expensive cars in front of the door? Oh, sure. Well, the car was right in front of the door, and um, there's some conjecture whether there someone had given him some roses on the car or not. That's not really important. What's important is that while I was having dinner with Lou Bracker, he, Lou Bracker happened to look up, and he saw and recognized Alec Guinness who had a date, um, her name and her date's name was Thelma. And I can give you the last name. She was 
connected in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And they looked in and the place was packed. It was crowded. And I guess the major D said, sorry, there's no, no seating. And they walked out and Lou Bracker says to Jimmy, look, I just saw Alec Guinness. He was going to come here to, you know, for dinner. And he walked out, but Jimmy just bolted out of the chair and ran after him down the, you know, down the driveway and, and introduced himself. And of course, Alec Guinness didn't know who he was. And uh, he said, I'm James Dean and I know who you are. And, and, you know, and why don't you come and join us? And, and uh, Alec Guinness, you know, thought that was wonderful. And he said, and by the way, look at my brand new car. It's a new Porsche. And they walked over and Alec Guinness, who was not a car person and was not impressed by this car, told him what he thought. He said, look at my watch. Today is whatever. You'll be dead by, you know, within a week. And so when they went back in, Jimmy was visibly shaken, according to Lou Bracker. But sort of sloughed it off like, oh, this guy doesn't, he's not a motorhead. You know, he doesn't know what, what's going on here. And um, I think that, uh, I think that it was significant. And, and I've been interviewed before and, and the question is, well, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. I think Alec Guinness was clairvoyant. I really do. And he had that power. He sensed that power. You know, that he knew that something was going to happen. And I never got to interview Alec Guinness. I was busy interviewing other people. And, of course, you know, he's passed away. Uh, and, I've, and I've watched the interviews on TV. It's a little shaky on, you know, what day it was. But he, he tells the story. And, I, and, and, and Lou Bracker basically said, that's what I heard. I heard it, you know, firsthand. I didn't, I didn't hear it outside, but I heard it, you know, when they came inside. So I think that that story is true. I think that Alec Guinness predicted his death, thought that the car was, you know, it was a sinister type of car or something was going to happen. Did, was, did, did, did Alec ever comment after Dean's death? Yes, he did an interview. Um, and, and you can find the interview online. Uh, you just, you know, find if you just type in Alec Guinness, James Dean interview, it'll pop up. It's about a 10 minute interview. And it's later in life. It takes place, I would say, in the early 70s. And uh, he might have been off, you know, on the day that it happened or the time that it happened. But it, but he's sincere I mean, when he's talking. And I will say this. There's a lot of Hollywood stars um, like Dennis Hopper who wanted to be James Dean's best friend. And after James Dean died, he made up a lot of stories, you know. Mm-hmm. But if, if you go through, if you comb through the photos... You'll never find a photo of Dennis Hopper and James Dean together. They didn't socialize together. It's all made up. Hmm. Um, I'll just tell you, I have have an interesting story. Everybody likes to say, well, I was invited to go to James Dean. Hold on. Before we get too far away from Alec Guinness, I just have one more question about that. Sure, go ahead. Was there any other instances of him having any other clairvoyance with any other actors, drivers, anything like that? Did anything ever come about of, or was it more of just that specific instance and energy that he thought he got from that car well that's the most specific uh situation however you did mention uh the interview they had with gig young when he was on the set of giant and they did a, a psa a public service announcement yeah. for uh, that safe driving and that was uh 
it, it was uh, semi-orchestral. I mean, James Dean knew why he was coming in and being interviewed for that, but he ad-libbed and he, you know, he walked away and he said, you, you know, uh, be careful, you know, uh, how you drive because, you know, the uh, life you save could be mine. And he laughed right. and walked out. Was that before or after Alec told well, him? Um, that actually was before. And That's probably why he was so shaken up as he did that PSA. And then here's this other guy going, you're going to die in that car. And you yeah. start adding those things up in your head. And Well, not only that, but the interesting thing is, oh, I don't, you know, I'm really safe on the, the highway and, you know, and I, I, I trust myself on the racetrack. The, the truth of the matter is that I've interviewed a number of people, uh, three that I can specifically talk about, two women and a, and a man that were actors with him. And he took them for a ride in his MV and his motorcycle and his Porsche and tried to scare the hell out of everybody, <laughs> especially women. He loved to scare the women. Maybe that's where they scare the pants off of him comes from. <laughs> and Julie, uh, Julie Harris, who was co-starred with in East of Eden, said, and, uh, and this is, you'll find this interview online, too. She said, you know, he was going faster and faster. And I knew that if I told him that he was driving too fast— to slow down, he would just go faster. Mm -hmm. And then Frank Mazzola, who played Crunch in uh, Rebel, was uh, was with him driving the uh, Speedster in Mulholland, and they spun out on some dirt, and they almost went over a cliff. Do you think James stopped. Dean? Did, do you think he wanted to die? No, I don't. I don't. I I think that he was not afraid. Uh, he was not. He he really wasn't afraid of of, of being hurt or. Or he loved speed, and he would he would go through. The light was turning green to yellow to red. He could easily stop on yellow. Now he'd go through it, and then he would turn around to say to Frank, "Was all oh, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna hurt me? You know, I'm I'm free." So hmm. he he didn't have a death wish. He had too many things that he wanted to do. Although he played that up a lot about bullfighting and the noose. There's a lot of photos. Um, so before we get into two more, get away from uh, the death of James Dean and start talking to some of these other things, is there anything you want to tell us about the day that he died and that we didn't mention or the accident? Or do you want to kind of take us through that from your perspective and your expertise and your knowledge? Yeah, definitely. I definitely can do that. Let's uh, before we before we do that, I, sure. I, had, uh, I made some notes okay. about after he bought the spider. And you did some research. You mentioned George Barris, mm -hmm. so I want to clear. I want to clear this up uh, because it's the famous car. It's the 550, and you know it has a famous VIN. It's 550-0055. They made 90 cars. It's the 55th car out of 90, but it's a mirror image of itself. 550-0055. Mm. So that's a coincidence. The car was silver and it had red. It had red racing stripes on it. So that's interesting because Porsche used racing stripes, tail stripes, to identify the cars when they were racing at Le Mans. There were three cars. They were all silver. The number was 32, 33, 34. Is easily, they could easily mix them up as they were whizzing by at 150 miles an hour. But you saw the, as it went by, you saw the tail stripe. It was red on silver. It was um, green on silver. 
it was black on silver or white on silver, you know. So they would they instead of using the numbers 32, 34, they'd say red, black, white, you know, and you know what order they were. And so this car may have been um, may have been initially in line to be a race car, but it didn't get finished until July after the racing season started for 55. So it became a, you know, a car that was going to be sold to a privateer in America, but it had a red stripe on it, which was fairly rare. So what's interesting, it's not just a red stripe, but it had a two millimeter gold leaf border that most people don't know about that separated the red from the silver, very distinct hand painted. And most people that do replica cars don't know that it had that little gold, gold leaf on it. Was that okay. painted by the painter in California or was that from no, the factory? So this, is, so this is what I'd like to tell you. So although George Barris said he did the painting, he did not. The car was came over. It already had the red racing stripe on it. Mm. And it also had the red interior. There was no special interior that George Barris did. George Barris had worked a little bit on modifying some cars in Rebel Without a Cause and casually casually James Dean. So he took control after James Dean's death. He said, well, I did this. I painted the red stripe. I I gave him custom seats. I painted the 130 on it. And during your interview, you said, is there anything significant about 130? Well, it was his provisional race number. It's the number that they assigned to him. James Dean's lucky basketball number in high school was three. So there are pictures of him playing for Fairmont High School, the Quakers, number three. When James Dean raced at Palm Springs, Bakersfield, Santa Barbara, he was a provisional driver. He had to finish two complete races, uh, three, three complete races before he got his own permanent number. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, I use three. He wanted 13. They said, that's a superstitious number. We don't issue 13. So his first number was uh, 23 in Palm Springs. Uh, it was 123 at Bakersfield. It was 33 at Santa Barbara. He asked for something similar for uh, the, uh, oh, he had registered for a race that he did not race in. That would have been Santa Barbara in May, in September, rather. And he got the number 233. And uh, then for Salinas, they gave him number 130. I have a copy of the registration. I can see in red where they wrote number 130. So he knew what his provisional number was, and he had to get it painted on. And uh, George Barris did not paint it. Dean Jeffries did everything. Okay. He had befriended Dean Jeffries through Bruce Kessler and uh, Lance Ravenlo, two racers. And, uh, and Jeffries used to do some work. He was a pinstriper, did some work for George Barris. Matter of fact, they had the, their shops were right next to each other. So while James Dean was there with the spider, probably on Tuesday before the Friday, George Barris was, you know, looking out the window, looking out the door, watching him. He, you know, he took it all in, but Dean Jeffries did everything. And, and I got very close with Dean Jeffries, um, and uh, Ian told me the whole story. And then my first book, I've got, you know, some really good quotes from Dean Jeffries. 
uh, George Barris just tried to take, you know, control over everything, said that he did it, but he did not. He did not. So Dean Jeffries painted Little Bastard on there. And I think you'd like me to talk about that, wouldn't you? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the name Little Bastard. Well, <laughs> that's probably the first time anybody's ever painted something like that on the back of their sports car, you know, in the 50s. <laughs> it was pretty provocative. All right. So the name actually came up uh, twice. And uh, you got the second part of it, but I'm going to tell you how it originated. When James Dean had finished filming East of Eden, he was living um, in a trailer on the set in Burbank of Warner Brothers. And that was a common thing. When you were filming, they gave you a trailer, you know, you stayed in there, and, you know, it was very convenient. So after the movie, he was supposed to leave, you know. The, the movie's over, <laughs> leave the trailer. He didn't want to leave. He liked living there. And so Jack Warner, president of Warner Brothers, got fed up with James Dean and told his assistant, get that little bastard off the lot. <laughs> and James Dean was thrown out of, you know, out of the trailer. And he was pissed. So they made a joke of it. You know, I'm a little bastard. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that James Dean may have been a little bastard. His, his, his um, mother and his father were not married when, when she became pregnant. So uh -huh. therein lies some truth. Most people don't know about that. Okay, so he had a friend. He befriended somebody by the name of Bill Hickman, who was a stunt driver for Warner Brothers. And Bill took an interest in James Dean because of the Porsches. And Bill was a driver and did stunt driving. So he he helped Jimmy, you know. He helped him, you know, with what we would call defensive driving today. So as it turns out, Bill Hickman, he needed Bill Hickman because he needed to drive. He needed someone to drive the station wagon and the trailer. And Bill Hickman was qualified to do that. So they, you know, they were planning to go to Salinas. And so they had this joke between each other. Hickman called him a little bastard because, you know, because that was a joke from Jack Warner. And James Dean would turn around and said, well, if I'm the little bastard, then you're the big bastard. <laughs> and they had a good laugh over that. So that's how this came about. So when James Dean took the car to Dean Jeffries, he gave him a little piece of paper, which I have a copy of. And it's actually in my first book. And it shows and incidentally, James Dean was a very good artist, and he sketched out the Porsche, and on the back, it said, Little Bastard. He gave that to Dean Jeffries. He said, I want you to paint this on the car. And, and Dean Jeffries painted it freehand, you know, with a, you know, with a, with his, with a particular font, the hmm. little, ba little Bastard. And it's not Little Bastard. It's Little Bastard, and it's got, you know, two, it's in quotes. Right. So... One of the things that James Dean said was, well, you know, I'll get back at Jack Warner and I'm going to win this race. And everybody behind me is going to know who the little bastard is. I'm in front of them. <laughs> but as we know, he never made it to that race. No, he didn't. He didn't make it. They had, uh, you know, they all got together Friday morning at Competition Motors. He dropped off the car the night before 
And there's a lot of stories that he was out partying. That's not true. He dropped the car off the night before because by the book, that car needed to be cold. The valves, we own Porsches. We know you're going to do a valve clearance. It's got to be cold. You got to drop the car mm. off the night before. He dropped it off. They had made arrangements. James Dean actually had ordered a trailer to be made, an aluminum trailer. It wasn't finished. So um, John von Neumann found somebody in the California Sports Car Club that had a trailer. They, you know, The trailer was delivered to Competition Motors. James Dean had a station wagon when she bought a brand new Country Squire. So he went from his house in the Country Squire to Competition Motors, which was on North Vine Street in Hollywood. And, and Bill Hickman and the photographer Sanford Roth, R-O-T-H, who was coming to do a spread for Collier's Magazine. So they came around. Uh, James Dean got to Competition Motors around 8.30. And, uh, and, and Roth was already working on the car. And so they needed to do valve clearance, oil change. Uh, they changed the spark plugs. They checked the timing. And he wanted to put a seatbelt in for James Dean, and he did. And he also had something special. Rolf Wittrich was part of the factory German racing team. He was at Nuremberg. He received a Nuremberg badge. It's a green, white, and black badge. And he gave it to James Dean, and he affixed it with two rivets, on the left side of the car, just in front of the door. So I really didn't know about that for a long time. And then I figured out what it was and spoke to someone that actually had raced at Nuremberg and said, yeah, I have a badge. And then deductive reasoning was it came from Rolf. He gave it to him as a present. Okay. Hmm. So they wanted to leave around 1030 and that didn't happen. They really didn't leave till 10 minutes of one. So one thing led to another. And, and this is uh, where is this again? Competition Motors. What city? 1219 North Vine Street. This okay. is, uh, the car was being prepared. The James Dean's father and uncle came and saw him. There's pictures of them. He went across the street to the Hollywood Ranch Market. They had coffee and donuts. James Dean characteristically didn't have any money. His father gave him $30. <laughs> which will go a long way, you know? And so they, James Dean paid for the coffee and donuts and had $28 and change. And they left around 10 minutes to two. And there's some famous photos that were taken um, in the back lot in color. And then two of them in color and black and white in the front of the competition motors. <clears throat> you got to remember that Sanford Roth was using black and white and Roth Woodrick had a Leica, 35-millimeter Leica, and he was using color. So all the color shots came from the mechanics camera, and the black and white were taken by the Sanford Roth. Interesting. So um, without getting into too much detail, they left. They stopped um, to two places. They stopped at, um, they stopped at uh, Jack McAfee's Porsche shop on Ventura for about five minutes to say hello. There were racers that were also going there. And then they got gas at the mobile station at Sherman Oaks, California, and Ventura. It's a famous photo of color. Jimmy standing next to the Porsche. You can see the gas pumps in the back. You can see the Ford uh, Country Squire with the wagon. That's the last photo that was taken of James Dean alive by Rolf Witterick and his like with his Leica camera. 
and then they headed north. Uh, there was no Interstate 5, but then they, they had to go up Route 99, which was Sepulveda Boulevard, Sepulveda. And they, and they got a traffic ticket at 3.30 at Mettler Station, which was over the grapevine. It was about a little, a little bit more than an hour from the mobile station. And the CHP officer said, you know, you were speeding and also the guy in the station wagon was speeding. So they both got tickets, we told them to slow down. At that point, they did not go through Bakersfield like a lot of people assumed. They took the racers road, which is on Route 166, right after the ticket. And it went through the oil fields and where all the cattle are. It was a back road that you could go as fast as you could. And it went, it went to Blackwell's Corner, which was at, at um, Route 33 and 466. So it was Route 466 that later got changed to 46 at Blackwell's Corner. And they did not get gas there. They didn't need gas, but they saw Bruce Kessler and Lance Ravetlo. And, and uh, Lance Ravetlo said, we'll meet you for dinner at Paso Robles at 6.30. And they all agreed to do that. So uh, Blackwell's Corner was about 30 miles away from Shalam where the accident happened. And James Dean was driving pretty fast. It was, it's an area, although it was a two-lane highway, you could go pretty fast in the flat area, but then it got curvy and you could go as fast. Um, and I, I believe that James Dean was trying to catch Bruce Kessler and Lance Bello, who had left about 10 to 15 minutes before he did. Mm. I think he wanted to beat them to pass the Robles. So there is one witness, a witness and his wife, who were driving a Pontiac. James Dean passed them. And as he passed them on this two-lane highway, which was only 22 feet wide, 10, 10 feet on each side, basically, a car was coming towards him when he went over the line and the car had to get off the shoulder, practically crashed, you know, went off the shoulder and crashed in a gully because it wasn't wide enough for three cars. And so that happened right before the accident. The person driving the Pontiac was an accountant. His name was John uh, Roberts and his wife. And they they saw James Dean coming up on him. I think what happened was James Dean came up so fast that the closing speed was frightening and he had to pass him. Otherwise he's going to run into him. Mm. So he passed him and Mr. And Mrs. Roberts said, geez, you know, he looked at his speedometer. He said, he must be going 85, 90 miles an hour. And then at that point, within 20 to 30 seconds, they saw the accident. They actually saw the accident. They saw the uh, they saw a car coming in front of James Dean to make a left turn, and James Dean sort of did a tried to sidestep the car and went off to the right, and then they saw the cars uh, crash, and James Dean's car flipped up in the air. Now you got to remember, there's a lot of stories about this and simulations but what they saw was they saw the spider going to the right and then losing control of the car 
It was a Porsche. It was a mid-engine. He lost control. The rearing came around on him, just like a 911 would. And he crashed into the Ford that was practically stopped in his lane. And the car, the impact was so horrendous that the spider, which weighed 1,300 pounds, went up in the air vertically and turned around, uh, would be counterclockwise, and actually landed back on its wheels. If it hadn't landed on its wheels, people would say, well, James Dean's car turned over. But people didn't realize that until you looked at the damage. You could see that the rear end was caved in because it came down with the nose up, but it landed on its wheels 45 feet to the right, to the north. Wow. The impact was so intense that it pushed a three-ton Ford. Incidentally, it's a Ford Custom, not a Tudor. Oh. Everyone everyone thought it was a Tudor, but it's a Custom. They look the same. The side windows are a little different, and I didn't realize that until later on in life. It pushed that Ford backwards. Um 45 feet and the whole left front suspension was jammed into the firewall. Wow. And in those days, everything was all steel on that Ford. You know, the Porsche was aluminum. There wasn't very much protection on that car. So it was a horrendous crash. And there were two witnesses, one seeing it from behind and the other seeing it from the opposite, from the opposite direction where Donald Turnipsey was coming. He had just passed two guys in a pickup truck and they saw the accident too. So there was some speculation about who was driving and, you know, everyone likes to say, Oh, the mechanic was driving. No, the mechanic was not driving. There was no reason for him to drive. And here's the reason why James Dean was driving. The impact crushed the left side of the car and pushed the clutch pedal into the brake pedal with James Dean's foot caught in between. He was a captive. His foot was crushed between the clutch and the brake pedal. And he was, as they say in racing terms, stretched. He got stretched to the right. So when the car landed and finally stopped, he was basically hanging over the right side of the Porsche, which wasn't that wide to begin with, but he wasn't going anywhere because his foot was an anchor. Um, he was not wearing a seatbelt. Ralph Woodrick didn't have a seatbelt, and he had been called, uh, catapulted out of the car when it flipped up, and he landed five feet from the car. <clears throat> Imagine this, that the car... Is flipped over in midair. He's thrown out of the car. He lands five feet from the car. The car could have easily landed on top of him. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the photos, you see a a body next to the car and a seat. It was James Dean's seat that broke loose. And the seat wasn't anchored very well in a a 356. It was on two, two rails. So once, you know, once the alignment got misaligned, the seat came loose. It wasn't bolted in. So I'm looking at a photo. I'm just kind of looking through photos as we talk here. There's a picture that everybody claims is James Dean alive next to the car with his head up on the ground. Like someone. No, that's Rolf Winterick. So that's That's Rolf. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's Rolf. Uh huh. He's got dark hair. It's Rolf. And he's wearing, he's wearing what I call lumberman's uh, red and black flannel 
uh, shirt was hot that day, so he rolled the sleeves up above his elbow. Hmm. James Dean was not in a red jacket. That was a prop, you know, from Rebel. He was wearing a white V-neck T-shirt and and um, and light blue pants. Um, now James Dean was in the car. They had to extract him with a crowbar, and Bill Hickman held on to him. Thought that he was still alive, you know, after the accident, but um, he was, you know, he was really hurt pretty badly. I mean, a lot of you know, just you got to remember the car is 39 inches tall, and he's in that car. There was no protection, and his head was the same height as the headlights of that 50 Ford. So that's what hit him. The headlights in the in the grill, you know, they had that huge, massive chrome grill in front of a 1954. Um, it was a massive blow, and he would not have lived if he had a seatbelt. Or a lot of people like to say, "Well, it's 1955. I mean, it was a race car. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a street car." Well, you look at the picture. There's no seatbelt or not. You're not. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter at that point. Yeah, you're not. You're not walking away. That so the only thing I wanted to say is there's a lot of there's been some simulations over the years, two simulations, computer simulations. One simulation shows James Dean's car spinning away like a top. But I just I just said to you, no, the car went 90 degrees in the air. The inertia went straight up and then the weight of it pulled it down. But it moved 45 feet. It flew in the air, turned over. Landed on its wheels 45 feet, and then the Ford was pushed 45 feet. So that's 90 feet. I mm. mean, that's a, a massive. And that doesn't happen at 55 or 60 miles an hour. So here's what I did. And a lot of people have a hard time understanding this. I got the schematic of the transmission from the 550, which, which correlates MPH to RPM. So the question was, what gear was he in? Mm. Well, he was in fourth. Maybe he was shifting to third. But when I got into this transmission thing, the, the transmission was locked in fourth gear. It was damaged. It was locked. So if you, if you extract or if you, if you look at the MPH versus RPM, to be in fourth gear minimally, he had to be at 85 miles an hour to be in fourth gear. That would have been at 2,000, 2,500 RPM. And he probably was at close to 6,000 RPM. Let's say 55 to 65. That would have been, you know, max of red line. And so that's 85 or 90 miles an hour. Hmm. And there's no reason why he wouldn't have been. Right. You look at that road and it's just wide open. It is. It comes down. It comes, you're down a hill. And then, and, then, and then it goes into the flats. It's completely level. And the whites who, you know, were passed by him 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds before the accident said that they thought he was going exceeding 85 miles an hour. They knew how fast they were going. So everyone likes to say, oh, he wasn't speeding. Well, there's a lot of people that want to say, you know, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't Jimmy's fault. Poor Jimmy. Well, it was Jimmy's fault. He was speeding. That's one side of the story. The other side was, where, what was Donald Turnipsey doing? He was making a left turn. He didn't have his blinker on. He didn't have his hand out. And he was, you know, he crossed the line before the junction. Before he got to the apex of the junction, he was already across the line. So he was going as fast as he could. Hmm. And my, my speculation is that 
Donald Turnerfleet, who was a student at Cal Poly, was every Friday left school to go home to his pregnant wife in Tulare and, and had a little game, played a little game. How fast can I go from A to B? I've played and that I game. Think, <laughs> we've all done it, haven't we? We've all done it in our minds. Especially when there's I... a girl at the other end of the line. <laughs> exactly. How fast can, you know, how fast can I go? And so if you look at, um, if you look at the junction and the photos that were taken, it's interesting. Everybody likes to say, well, look at these skid marks. Well, it took me a while to figure it out that the skid marks were dual skid marks. There were four skid marks, which doesn't come from a car. It comes from a truck. Right. You know, with four wheels, four tires on the back. So there were skid marks all over that junction hmm. from previous incidents. Now, the whites say they didn't see any brake lights, which means that James Dean did not hit the brakes. Donald Turnipsey did hit the brakes, but there's two sets of skid marks there. One belongs to him, and the other belongs to a truck. And so the police messed that up, too. It's really interesting. I've looked at the photos, you know, millions of times. Right. And then I've had other people that, you know, that know, you know, that have a good sense of what they're seeing. And we really have dissected what happened. The police got it partially right. I'll just say this. The police had never seen a Porsche Spider. They didn't realize that a car could go 130 miles an hour. They didn't realize that something so low at 39 inches goes so fast and only weigh 1,300 pounds. And in all their life and their experience and all the accidents that they saw, they never saw anything like this before. Sure. So, so what, did, what, what did Rolf say? say? Did he ever have any comments? Did he talk or, you know? Well, here's the problem. Rolf, Rolf could barely speak English. He got hurt so bad. I mean, his head went into the dash and then he flew up and his, his finger got caught, you know, up, at, you know, his finger got ripped. His hip, his, his uh, foot got twisted around. I mean, he really was in bad shape. When they interviewed him, they needed somebody that could speak German. And here's the most interesting thing that I, that I discovered. He said, we were going 50, 55, 60 most of the time. And then someone who spoke German said he's not talking about a speedometer. He's talking about a tachometer. Uh. And the assistant district attorney said, what the hell is a tachometer? Right. <laughs> no clue. He was talking about RPM. Mm -hmm. Well, not 55 miles an hour. So he was under, they gave him morphine. He was really you know, in bad shape and they interviewed him and that was his testimony. He couldn't remember anything. And then later he said, I, I blacked out and which is true. A lot of people have all this trauma. They can't remember the actual impact. Yep. And he didn't know whether James Dean had shifted from fourth to third. He didn't know exactly what the speed was. He said he was dozing when it happened. Hmm. And, um, he just couldn't remember. And you know, they had an inquest and, in. What I'm saying is the inquest was held on October 11th. Mr. And Mrs. White drove up to Portland, Oregon, and they, um, the Spokane rather, and they, Washington, and they gave a deposition when they got to uh, Oregon and Washington, and it was sent down to, to um, California 
it didn't it didn't get there in time. There was no FedEx then. It came by regular mail. It didn't arrive. Their deposition and their eyewitness testimony didn't arrive until after the inquest. So there was no testimony, you know, with respect to the whites who, you know, really said this is how fast it's going. There were no brake lights. You know, um, we saw this car come across the line. None of that got into uh, testimony. And another thing was Rolf's testimony should have been disallowed because he he wasn't lucid. Right, right. He was heavily medicated. And so Donald Turnipseed had an attorney who said, keep your mouth shut. Well, of you course. Know? Yeah. Well, and said, all right. And so Donald Turnipseed said, well, I didn't see him. Well, he, he did break. He did see him, but he saw him too late. Sure. Okay. James Dean was not represented by an attorney. What does that mean? Well, he was dead, but he should have he should have been represented. The estate needed an attorney right. for that mm-hmm. inquest. Mm-hmm. So there was there was you know wasn't a fair inquest. So the result was the jurors. This takes place in San Luis Obispo, you know, Central California, a very Republican Republican you know atmosphere. We're not we're talking about 1955. We're talking about 10 years after the war. We're talking about Rolf Wittereck, who was a Nazi hmm. and driving a seventh and a seven thousand dollar Porsche German car. And Might as well been a, let, uh, in a Luftwaffe. Yeah. Yeah. And Donald Turnipseed lives there, you know, so Navy veteran, wife pregnant. Now, they came back with a verdict that no one was no one was at fault. No one was guilty. Well, what, what would it have I, done to even immolate that turnips seed guy i mean what what good would that have done you know it it's it seemed like just like a, a when it all comes down to it it's just a tragic accident yeah it you was know, that's you know just what, you, what it comes down you're exactly to exactly right you know a lot of people don't want to say that but it was a tragic circumstance i call it and i say this all the time it was an unguarded moment for both of them mm-hmm. now if you were i we're making a turn, we'd have to yield to oncoming traffic. That's the law. So I, and I'm an attorney, so I went and found the motor vehicle rule book from 1955. I wanted to see what, you know, what the law say in 55. It said that you had to display your intention of a turn. Not every car had a turn signal. You had to stick your, your arm out. Yeah, I learned that in driver's ed. All right. So they were basic, you know, they were basic uh, gestures. You, if you put your arm up, you know, 90 degrees, it means you're going to make a right turn. Yep. If you stick it straight out, you're going to make a left turn. If you stick it down, it means you're stopping. Yep. Okay. Donald Turnipseed did not display that. He had a turn signal, didn't display it. All right. If you or I had been doing this and we made a left turn and we caused, or we were, let me just back up, and we were involved in a crash we would be charged with a failure to yield right of way. It's true. That's true. That produced a fatality, which is a misdemeanor. It's a misdemeanor. Right. So Donald Turnipsey wasn't charged. And I think if there had been representation for James Dean, the attorney would have said, I object. You know, there needs to be a formal charge here. And there was. And they probably would have formally charged him and then like state it. Or something like that. You know, they yeah, probably I don't think he would have been found guilty. Yeah. I mean, 
but again, it goes back to it was an unguarded moment. They both they both were speeding. They both were, you know, they both were technically breaking the law, caused an accident, and unfortunately, James Dean died. So let me let me let me posit this to you. Have you been you've been to the spot, I imagine? Lots of times. OK. Have you ever does, been there does, at the time of day that this happened? Did you yeah, ever okay, go so, go there at that time? Stand yes. where that car, that Ford was, yeah. and yes. look. What did it look like? Was it was there a mirage? Was it difficult okay, to see? So, so here, so here's the most interesting. So I'm thing. thinking, what was the look. weather like on that day? Like, did, how did, good did you get your you standing out there? How close did, were you to what it was like? You, that's a wonderful question, and I'm going to blow you guys away. <laughs> I've been there, and I supposedly it happened at five forty-five. You come down off of Polonio Pass on a 45-degree grade to the flats before you get to the junction. The sun is the sun is setting as you're coming down the, the grade, and it's very bright, and it was probably 90 degrees, and it was clear. It's usually The weather is usually pretty good there, not a cloud in the sky. That's what James Dean saw. Donald Turnipseed had the sun to his back, so there wasn't really any, uh, there really wasn't anything distract his eyes, but he saw the heat mm-hmm. rising from that the, the pavement. You know, it's like a mirage, you know? Mm-hmm. So whatever he saw wasn't, you know, it was, it was dimensional. You know, the, the car was wavering through the heat if he saw it at all. Now, here's the most interesting thing. I've been there at 545, and hundreds of people show up there on September 30th to pay tribute to James Dean. And then something dawned on me. This is September 30. What about daylight savings time? Hmm. And I started to look back, because not every state had daylight savings time. In California, did have daylight savings time, but it went off on Labor Day. Whenever Labor Day was, September 3rd, 4th, I forgot which one it was. So we're talking about September 30th. So they weren't on daylight savings time anymore. They were on sta- they were on standard time. So when you go to visit that site today, they're still on daylight savings time because it lasts till November. So you're an hour ahead. So the sun is bright and you say, oh, my God, the sun is bright. No wonder he couldn't see anything. No, the sun was not bright. It was an hour later and he was setting. And by the time you got down to the flats, the sun was behind the bluff. And so you almost needed your headlights at that point. And people don't realize that. Interesting. I discovered that I'm, I'm the first person. I'm going to say I'm the first person in the world to make that distinction. So how does that change things then? Does it change the who could see what? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Because as you see photos taken, you know, online, you'll see the the wrecked car and you'll see that it's dark already. Yeah. So at six o'clock, it was already dark. And when they took these pictures at 630, it was very dark. Good point. And so you show up at 630 there Today, September 30th, the sun's very bright. It's on daylight savings time. It, you know, it's just one of those things. I said, what about daylight savings time? Hmm. And so I've made a point in my books, everything I've written, to make sure that it says Pacific 
DT, PTD, not PST. Sure. And uh, a lot of people don't pick it up. But it, it really is significant. It's significant as to when it happened, because if it happened at four in the afternoon or three in the afternoon, it's irrelevant. Yeah. So, Lee, after the crash, there were all these weird circumstances that seemed to pop up that yeah. are attributed to the curse. And it yeah. seems like most of these were just fabricated. And it, it's, yeah. it's, When I see all these, it gets to the point where I wouldn't even want to look at the car. Like, I wouldn't even want to lay eyes on it. Not a nut, bolt, washer, nothing. You, I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't look at it. I wouldn't breathe the yeah. same air that is within 10 square miles of anything that's there. But If you're superstitious. I'm not even that superstitious. But holy cow, some of this evidence as presented on the internet and elsewhere makes me think that if I touch it, I'm just my blood's going to run cold and I'm going to drop okay. dead. Well, right, let's so. let's go down the list here yeah, and we'll, this, we'll try to keep it brief if, if we can. Um, okay. So, so let, first of all, let's let's start at the accident. And I just because there's a okay. piece missing off the car that's really significant. Okay. All right. So, all right. So it's here's what's interesting. Um, it happens at a junction, not an intersection. It's a Y junction. Okay. And it's named today in 2005 was renamed officially the James Dean Memorial Junction. Now, everyone likes to say intersection, but an intersection is like an X or a cross. Yep. Mm -hmm. This is a Y, and it's very important, okay? So, the Mr. White stopped, and they said there's a, there's a garage mile west. He gets, he gets back in his car, drives there. Yes, there is a garage there. There's a tow truck there and an ambulance now, why would somebody have a garage with an ambulance there? Why? Because there were so many effing accidents at that huh. junk. <laughs> it I'm became sure. lucrative, all right? So they, the ambulance came. Two people are, you know, are in the ambulance. There's a driver and his assistant, okay? And we, and we know who they are. And there's photos. You'll see the photos, you know. Of there, so they pry James Dean loose. They put him in the ambulance, and Roth Witterick gets picked up, and he gets put in the ambulance. So the ambulance has two people, and it's going to go. It's going to go west, 26 miles to Paso Robles Hospital. Okay, all right. After they get done with all that, and James Dean, by the way, is dead on arrival. The ambulance driver, uh, about 45 minutes later gets in his tow truck and picks up the, the car. And there's photos of the car on the hook on the tow truck. Mm -hmm. You can really see the substantial damage there. And by the way, if you look hard on the door, the right passenger door, which is still there, the left door is gone. That whole left side is gone completely. The door is open. It's, it, you know, it's got bent, so it doesn't close. And you'll see that the whole door is covered in blood. Wow. Most people don't see that, but that's how horrific this was. Horrific. Okay. They take the car to the garage. First, they take the Spider. Then he comes back and he takes the Ford Custom. And there are photos in that garage of the Porsche Spider. And if you look behind the Porsche Spider, you'll see the you'll see the black and white, the two tone huh. uh, Ford there too. And you'll see a lot of liquid all over the floor because everything was leaking. So there's 
you know, those photos that were taken by Sanford Roth of the accident afterwards, that night, there's a guy by the name of Harry Camby, who I guess was about 18 years old. He was working on construction. And there was like um, next to the uh, garage, there was like a little restaurant called Jack Ranch. Anyway, he's there and they talk about the accident. He sneaks into the garage and he decides he wants a souvenir and he rips off something that's about the size of a foot, about the size of a softball, a little bit larger than a softball. And it's the cowling where the plexiglass windscreen was. And he just ripped it off and he put it under his shirt and went home, kept it. Okay, so that's, let's just put that to the side because that becomes a big story later on. All right, so the car is towed back to Competition Motors by John von Neumann. And who incidentally is, is there shown with a rider for Roan Track magazine removing items from the spider. There's photos of two men, first one man and then two men. They're taking the personal items. Hmm. By the way, they found Rolf Witterick's camera, which has three shots of James Dean in it. So anyway, the car is the next day removed to competition motors. So let's go through the process. If you ever had an accident and your car is totaled, well, the insurance company owns it. They pay you, they own the car. So they, the car went in storage various places and then it was turned over to a salvage yard called um, A&A. Um, it was in Burbank. And Dr. Eskridge, William Eskridge, who was a racer, also a family doctor, lived in Burbank. He had raced against James Dean. He saw the value of what that engine, the four cam engine, was right. It was cracked. It was undamaged. And he had just bought a Lotus without an engine. Lucky day for him. For under $1,100, it was actually $1,092.50, he bought the entire car. This is William Eskridge, not George Barris. William Eskridge bought everything and took it to his place. And with his friends, and I've interviewed his friends and his son, they stripped the car. He used the engine and put it in a Lotus and renamed the car POTUS. <laughs> Think about that. P-O-T-U-S. Mm -hmm. In 1955, if he had copyright or coined that name, he'd be worth a gazillion dollars. <laughs> POTUS, President of the United States. Yeah. Right. P-O for Porsche, T-U-S for Lotus. How clever was that? Yeah, right? sure. And he even painted the name on the car, POTUS. Anyway, that's a whole different story because he raced it. All right. And then we'll put that to the side. All right. The rest was junk. He parted out the, uh, so, so the rear suspension trailing arms, the, uh, the transaxle called the transaxle. He took that out. Um, he took the instruments out. He certainly took the engine out, took all the electrics out, left the seats and the steering wheel and the front wheels and the back wheels on the car, <clears throat> which was a mess. And then the, that was all went to the junkyard, hmm. except it didn't get to the junkyard. Somebody called George Barris and said, actually, it was a friend of George Barris called John Hall. And John Hall said, yeah, I'll take it. And instead of 
dumping it in the junkyard, the salvage yard, San Fernando Valley salvage yard. George Barris winds up with it. He didn't pay anything. He got it for nothing. So this guy has weaseled his way into a few different ways on this story. You know, he's kind of like inserted himself into the legacy on his own accord. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, Dr. Eskridge, racer, he had raced offies, and, you know, he, he, he was a great engineer, aside from being a surgeon and a family doctor. He really knew how to put things together. He had a good friend who actually was an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Troy McHenry. Lived in Beverly Hills, had some money, and he also had a Porsche, and he was not a great driver, and he crashed his Porsche a couple of times and needed spare parts. <laughs> so Eskridge didn't need the transaxle, so he said, here, you take it. Take the trailing arms, take some steering, you know, mechanisms and whatever. Gave it to him. I don't think he, I don't even think they, he was just a good friend. I don't think they paid for it. He loaned it to him. Did he know where it had come from? I'm sorry? Did he know that it had been in James Dean's car? Did he know know that? Yeah, sure. He'd seen seen it. Troy McHenry had visited him and everything. Yeah, they were all good friends. So... All of a sudden, we got a lot of branches going, you know, northeast, southwest. Where, you know, the car needed to go to the salvage yard. No, it winds up with George Barris, who says, I'm going to restore it. Well, that was a, you know, that was a, a Herculean task that could never happen. And he basically got his guys and they took some sheets of aluminum and they welded it together. And then, they, and then Dean Jeffries told me. To make it look like it was in an accident, they took two by fours and were beating the side of the car. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the photos, you can see it's they took a sheet of aluminum, they welded it on, and you can see it has all kinds of you know bashes in it. Doesn't look like James Dean car, like the wreck. But anyway, Barris had this bright idea that he's gonna make some money off of it, and he lent it to the National Safety Council of Los Angeles in the highway patrol chp and they and they took it to auto shows and under under the guise of speed kills james dean's last sports car which is about six or eight photos of various locations yeah and And that that chp uh when they had it that's supposedly when this garage fire was and from the sensationalized accounts that i found Everything in the garage was completely charred except right. for the remains of the car. That's correct. That's so. So you know where this was. It was in Fresno. Now, I sent an email earlier today. Did you get it? I okay. did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, George Barris. Everything burned down. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Hmm. Unbelievable. And then I happened to find this article that said, oh, "No." There was a fire. There were some, the, the, the spider's tires got scorched and the paint got scorched, but nothing else was hurt. The, the building did not burn down. And, my, and I asked George Barris about this, and he didn't want to talk about it. And we're going to get into this because I've talked, you know, at first I met George Barris. We were being interviewed, and you know, I was in awe. I mean, I grew up with Hot Rod Magazine. I knew who the guy was. And then... <laughs> And then I'm more involved, and all of a sudden I become a co-producer on, you know, for ABC and some of these other, you know, speed TV, because I knew a lot. And they said, "We want you to be the co-producer. We want you to talk to George Barris and ask him questions." And then I realized, 
George Barris's questions and answers were, were different every time. He, he, he told different stories. He embellished. Car was in a boxcar. No, it was in a truck. I mean, it's, he was there the day that they loaded the car off the trailer. I mean, this stuff was like going wild. And I, and I would say to him, you know, you know, that's not true. And he said, mm, you know, I was there. You weren't. Hmm. Well, I'll just tell you that down the road before he died, and I was doing my second book in 2015. I said, George, I'm coming to L.A. and I've got some interviews. Why don't we have lunch and let's put everything up on the table? And I knew that he was sick. And I said, let's just talk it out. And all of a sudden there was silence on the phone and I thought I lost the connection. I said, George, George. And there was no answer. And then, but then I could hear him breathing. And he said, you know, Lee, you're a pretty smart guy and you figured a lot of things out. But I just have to tell you something. I like the story just the way it is. <laughs> hmm. And two months later, he died. Wow. So, okay, he's got all these things like you touch the car, you break your hip. Yes, the car was on tour. It was at theaters. It was at car shows. I actually saw the car in 1960 in Baltimore at the Baltimore Auto Show, maybe a few weeks, three weeks before, supposedly it went to Miami to a safety convention, which was untrue. It actually was the Miami Autorama. And supposedly he said, well, it's in a box car, sealed car. It was in a sealed truck because George Barris had created a circus he had a semi-trailer, and, and if you were a promoter in Minnesota for an auto show, he would say, you know, I can offer you 20 cars. Here's a list of 20 cars. Pick 10 up. Put them in my truck. We'll take them there. And, you know, and then you, you have more than just a local show. You have a national show. That's how he made a living. And James Dean Spider was always on the list, except it went from number one to number 20. By 1960, it wasn't something that people wanted to see anymore. And and this is me talking. James Dean's car and James Dean fell out of favor because of the music culture in this country. By 1960, speed didn't kill. Speed was good. Faster, faster, faster. Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys, the Hondells, you know, it, um, Okay, so the speed, the speed culture was changing everything. Nobody wanted to see James Dean's car anymore. They wanted to see drag racers. Hmm. And so I think George Barris said, what am I going to do with this? The car's falling apart. You know, it was falling apart. There, the last photo that I have, it's on a skid. It's on a skid. They it didn't even have wheels anymore. You know, so it was falling apart. When I saw it, I was 14 years old. In Baltimore, it was in the corner. Nobody was paying any attention to it. I knew what it was. I was in heaven. I got to see the car. But nobody nobody cared. They wanted to see drag racing and, and candy apple red hot rods. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So I think George Barris felt, you know, it's falling apart. It's a liability. He concocted this story that it disappeared. And he said, came back to L.A., we opened the the, the door, the sealed door, 
and it wasn't there. All was there was a big Xerox of the registration. How much insurance yeah. did he money did he get when it disappeared? Well, I don't know because I wanted to talk to him. He wouldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. That was more so, of a hypothetical question. There, it's just... so here's, here's something that I did. You're really the first to hear this. So I've worked with a private investigator on issues, and he divulged a lot of information that I didn't know about. He had a software that could tap into every newspaper in the world. It's something that we can't do anymore. You have to pay for historical news today. Yeah, LexisNexis. You got to be a member of that. Yeah, exactly. So he, so he, he said to me, you know, I verified the Miami Auto Show. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a speed show. It wasn't a safety council. It wasn't the Highway Patrol. It was a regular autorama. And so he verified the date with me, and then he said, and guess what? The car showed up in Arizona two auto shows later, months later. And I, through the good fortune, stumbled over an invoice that somebody had, a promoter, and there's the car listed. You know, like I said, 20 cars were listed. The car was listed at number 15. Hmm. And that car was being offered two months later after George Barris said it disappeared. Does it say who it was sold by and to? Well, or it wasn't a sale. That was just it being on display, right? Yeah. So, oh, I mean, okay. So I thought George, it was an auction. George just made it up. He made up the story. It's convenient. Right. But he forgot that he had lent the car out. He, you know, he had used the car in a, his promotion <laughs> months later. So tell so, me this, Lee. I, I read, at least at one point, that there was a collector offering a million dollars for information on yeah, the wreckage. Yeah. Was that, is, did yeah. that happen? Yeah. So here's, so here's, so here's how this works. And, and this is actually going to be current. So, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a person by the name of Brian Graham and he's the manager of the Volo auto museum in Illinois. And he, uh, over the years, uh, had a lot of business with George Barris. George Barris gave him or sold him or lent him a lot of his cars, a lot of his hot rods, you know, his custom cars that he made. So they had a good relationship. And in 2005, which would have been the 50th anniversary of James Dean's death, they had a big media blitz that a million dollars would be offered for information leading to the whereabouts of James Dean's MIA spider. And what year was this? 2005. Okay, so Barris is alive at this time. Yeah, okay, okay. So, so, and they even said that George Barris will verify everything. And if you can produce, you know, the information or the car, George Barris is the last word, you'll be paid a million dollars. And by the way, we have a door to the spider. And I thought that was really odd. The left door was completely obliterated by the accident. You can see that from the photos. If you just look at the photos, you would know that the left door is toast. I I did talk about the right door, didn't I? I said the right door is pictured on the tow truck, you know, with the blood on it. Mm -hmm. So what are they talking about a door? You know, they have a door. So someone said to me, you know, Lee, there's, there's more than one car involved in this they must have gotten hold of another spider 
and cannibalized it and used parts to put this thing together. And I agreed with him that, that they, you know, things were falling apart. I also knew of a racer, Joe Playin, who said we took the right fender when the car was under the, by the insurance company. It was still in storage, hadn't been sold yet. I had crashed my 550 at Riverside in 1957. Um, I'm sorry. He, I'm sorry, before Riverside. In 1956, and my mechanic took the right front fender off James Dean's car and put it on my car. So I thought there's a second car involved here. And other people feel the same way. So what, is, not, what does that actually mean, a second car? That they bought a... They, they, the car was falling apart. There were parts missing. In order for him to put the car on display, they needed other parts. Mm-hmm. So they found another 550. And George Ferris said, well, I've got a door. And it, said, it just didn't make sense to me. Why does he have a door, you know, unless it came from another car? Now, here's the interesting thing. Your Porsche owners, everything, everything that's movable on a Porsche is stamped with a VIN. So I wanted to see that door. I wanted to see what the stamp was. Did it say 055 or did it say something something else? And only a Porsche file would know that. So did you ever take yeah. a look at the door? No, never saw it. Hmm. So in 2015, they brought they brought it out again. And, they, and the story came out that this young boy who was six or seven or eight years old living in the state of Washington, watched his father and other men who may have been George Barris hide a car between two walls of a building. What? It's on the net. You'll find it. It's a big <laughs> story. The name, the guy's name is Sean Wiley. And it just so happens that Brian Graham was instrumental in promoting this story. The same person in 2005 that was interested in the million-dollar offer. So supposedly the Sean Riley went through hypnosis, did a polygraph test, and it all came back positive that he evidently saw men put a mangled car body in in between a false wall of a building. Somewhere in Seattle. Uh, near Seattle, Bellingham, actually. So um, I was contacted by Sean Riley's lawyer at the time, and I talked to him, and he didn't know who I was. And I sent him my book, and I said, after you get done reading the book, call me back, and he did. And he said, you know, the story doesn't seem to hold water. And I said, no, it doesn't hold water. And I said, look, we're both attorneys. Would you want to risk your reputation on something that's entirely bogus? And he said no. And he dropped the case. Um, this private investigator that I've been befriended, I've befriended, it's been very helpful to me. He gave me a lot of information that basically said that it was all concocted, that Sean Riley was after the money. And he's been interviewed, and what he says now is the building was destroyed. There's no evidence anymore. And I just want to tell you, when I thought about the building, I thought, well, it's a downtown building. It's a five, six-story office building, you know, and they use plasterboard and all that. No, it was a corrugated tin garage. And 
it just didn't make any sense. The whole thing didn't make any sense. It's all concocted. So that's what happens is the stories are embellished or concocted or both. And when we talk about what George Barris has to say about people cutting their fingers and breaking their hips and the truck driver, it doesn't make any sense. And, the, and as I mentioned earlier in, in my email, there's a, a colleague, another writer, James Dean Rival, who lives in Central California, and he checked the records of the, you know, of State of California, the Highway Patrol, of all fatalities between 1956 and uh, ni- uh, 1960 for the name of supposedly the truck driver and came up negative. There was no accident, no truck driver by that name. It's really the name of George Barris that was just misaligned. Why would he do? Why? Why though? Why would he do this and then die with the secret? You'd think he would do this and then somehow reproduce the car at some point and sell it. Well, I know, know. I know why he did it. He did it for hype. Every time he had a big show or there was an anniversary, he brought out the hype. You know, he had a new story to tell. And look, I. I interviewed George as a co-producer two or three times. And as like I said earlier, he always, he was a showman. He changed the story, he, you know. Well, there was, was always animated. that DeLorean thing too, that he was involved in. Like, yeah, there's another situation. And you know, look, uh, Dean Jeffries uh, created the monkey mobile. Mm-hmm. He created it with his own hands, but he let it go. And George Barris gets hold of the monkey mobile and starts telling the story, how he created it. Hmm. You know, um, I learned a long time ago as a lawyer, or just as a, you know, average person that, you know, has, that likes to use Sherlock Holmes, um, looking glass, you know, his, uh, magnifying glass, you know, photos that if you tell a story over and over again, after a while, you believe it. Right. And that's what that's what George did. He just believed it, and everyone else believed it. Well, they wanted to because it's romantic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's romantic, and, he, and it's and it's enigmatic, and it's interesting. Interesting, and and he kept this interest going for sixty years until he died. Look, uh, his daughter, you know, she uh, she took over the business, and you know, she basically tells the same story because that's what she's heard. And she has to protect yeah, her father's yeah, legacy too. There's, yeah, I don't, yeah, I mean, exactly. you understand that. She, she's perpetuated his legacy. So they actually, they actually just sold their building in North Hollywood, you know, for millions of dollars. So there is no Barris custom cars anymore. So in closing, what do you think happened to this car? Where do you think it is? What do you think happened to it? Well, I'm going to, this is something, and you're this, you get the scoop on this. So I'm now working with an unknown unmentioned producer right now that wants to do a mini series for perhaps an HBO or Netflix. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take all these stories and we're going to start to investigate them. And we're going to maybe offer a couple million dollars and let's see what comes out of the woodwork. The hmm. story is, it perpetuates. It's, it's really a great story. And maybe the car is still out there. You know, we don't know, but we're going to try and find out. Well, and, and this is a perfect time to do that. There's so much interest because this transaxle was sold, you know, for close to four hundred thousand dollars. And incidentally, I've known about this transaxle since 1977. I've, I've known, you know, that uh, Troy McHenry had it after he died. His wife sold it to uh, 
a racer named Al Kadrobi who fixed it. It was jammed in fourth gear. He had it for a while, and then he sold it to a, a, a Porsche file in San Francisco, Ned McDaniel. He sold it to Jim Barrington, who lived in Piedmont. Jim Barrington showed me photos um, in nineteen. In the 1980s, I have photos, and I sent those to you, so you've seen those. And uh, I was in contact with him. I probably could have bought it for peanuts. I didn't. <laughs> and then it was sold to a good friend of mine, Jack Stiles, who works for Paul Russell Restoration in Massachusetts. And he kept it for a long time and thought it was time to let it go. And Don Ahern picked it up, and we talked about it. And I said, uh, yeah, put it on, bring a trailer. That's the best that's the best type of auction. And, um, you know, there were a lot of bidders and it went up to, you know, 350,000 and few dropped out. A couple of bidders in Europe didn't understand the mechanics of bringing a trailer. And they thought, you know, at this time, you know, the auction would stop. And one person actually thought he owned it. But if you were bidding while the time ran out, it was extended for two minutes. And he was so pissed because, he thought that he had wanted it, stopped bidding. He wanted it. He's a collector. It would have been the best thing, you know, for a private collector or the Porsche Museum to own this. Instead, it goes to a haunted house in Las Vegas, which is a freak show. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. It really is too bad. And I thought, well, you know, what are they going to do with it? I, and I haven't been there personally, but I've seen photos. It's not done very well. I mean, no, if they asked me, I, I could have, I could have really. You know, I really could have given them a nice display. So it's a disappointment. It really is. And look, well, hopefully, is hopefully that's there. not the, the last word by... on on all of it, Lee. It sounds like it isn't. I'm very excited to to see whatever this new production is that you're working on. We'll keep our eyes open for that. I really want to thank you yeah, for coming man. on. And thank just... you. Thanks for hanging out with us. I hope I uh, hope we asked some questions that you hadn't heard before. No, you did, and you know. Look, this is, uh, you know, here, if you just take a step back, you've got James Dean, he's 24 years old. His life was so complex. And mm-hmm. with Portia, you know, after, after the accident, Portia was so pissed. They were humiliated that John von Neumann sold him this car and he dies in it nine days later. They wouldn't mention James Dean's name for 40 years. Wow. Not until the new Boxster came out in 1993. Yep. You know, which replicated the 550. And now they love James Dean. I mean, because James Dean is iconic, legendary. Yep. Uh, and, and so is Porsche. And, and so it's they branded the two together. This story will never die. It, it's going to go beyond my lifetime and yours as well. Well, thank you, Lee. So, listen, it's been a pleasure. I'm, um, I... I Every day, I, I'm involved in trying maybe to set the record straight. As I told you before, I tried to correct Wikipedia, and, and, I, and I just visited it yesterday, and I saw that people are throwing the trash back in. You know, <laughs> it, it, you, know you read a book, and you say, oh, my God, this is, you know, and they, well, whoever wrote the book obviously didn't do any fact-checking. So, so it, it's a vicious cycle. It really is. Um, I do believe that the car could be found. Um, I'll just take another minute and tell you that I'm responsible for finding the Porsche Speedster, which was traded in and disappeared for 60 years. And it wound up in Europe. 
And um, there's a there's a long tail to that. It's very complex. Well, I but tell you what, Lee, I think we could do several more episodes with you with different topics. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be glad to talk about the speedster. And incidentally, the 356 registry uh, gets first dibs on the story. I did part one, and we're going to do part two. And, okay. And good I have good a guys over there. By that. So, um, well, where can the, people find out about your book and find out about, uh, more about what you're doing? Well, the book is... Uh, <clears throat> okay, so the first book is... Um, is available online. It's called uh, a Porsche Speedster Type 540 uh, Quintessential Sports Car. It's an expensive book. It sells for about $800 now. It's very rare. With my, uh, I, I co-authored that with a, a number of Porsche files. Uh, my first book was in 2005, James Dean at Speed. It's out of print, but it is on eBay. It's selling for about $200. It's a really nice book. It's in color, and um, it's a nice book to have. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's more about James Dean's life and then his racing, and it stops at his death. My other book, James Dean on the Road to Salinas, is available. Um, and if you buy it on eBay, it comes through me, and I always contact the purchaser, and I ask them if they'd like to have you know, personal inscription and an autograph, and everybody does, and I'm glad to do that for them. All right, so we'll we'll try and put a link to the eBay. We'll we'll try and find it and link it in the show notes so yeah, people so can see I that. I have a site. It's uh, it's uh, uh it's uh, Lee Raskin dot net. We'll link to that as well. Yeah. So, and I'm coming out with a new book. It'll be James Dean and the 356 Speedster Love at First Sight, and that'll. That'll probably go into publication the end of this summer. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Well, Lee, I'm going to have to keep in touch with you, and we'll do some uh, some future episodes. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, I, I think that, you know, if you're not a Porsche file, this is just, the James Dean is just a great motorcycle. Yeah, it goes story. beyond the brand of Porsche. It goes it way really beyond does. that. It's, a, it's an incredible story. And if you're a Porsche person, it, it's, just, it's just more to, you know, it's just more to the lore, that's all. It really is. Well, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you spending time with us today. I, and listen, I, I appreciate your getting back to me. And you have a huge following, and you, uh, you're you going to have me as a follower as well. We appreciate that. Glad to hear that. Okay. All right. Take, Take care, care of yourself. All right. Thumbs up. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting the just hearing about the Barris stuff and, and everything yeah, like, else. You Before know, we, we talk about this a little bit more, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. As Chris knows, it's a great product that bridges the gap between a professional grade and enthusiast product. So I went after it with the Mercedes. Yeah. I threw I threw out step one. Yep. I never go past step one. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> That's just in life. I'm just <laughs> step one. Done. Uh, however many steps there are, step one. I would never get through any process of any kind. Any like self-healing, any of that stuff. Step oh, one. Man. I'm done. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, step what, one, what? recognizing you have a problem. Problem. That's as far as Done. I need to go. <laughs> so what, actually, Chris I, is, I, I, what you're referring to, though, is they have their easy two-step process. Yes. Cut and buff finish. And it did really well on the Mercedes. It yeah. really did. The problem with the, with the paint on that is it was really dirty, and you couldn't wash it off. Yeah, right. So it's I, just I like in the pores. I polished out the dirt. And it did, and it worked really well. The car is is shiny and scratchy now. 
Ooh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Well, they're great products. Not from the product, the no, car is just scratched. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> they are great products made by passionate enthusiast guys with a long history of developing products, and they know firsthand what makes good stuff. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order at obertcarcare.com when you use the code OVERCREST. Check those guys out. Support those that support the show. Absolutely. And make sure you head over to overcrestproductions.com slash drivers club. You can support the show. We've had a lot more people jumping on in the last month or two. We really, really appreciate that. And uh, like we said last week, merch is on order. And as soon as it gets here, we're going to post about it in the drivers club first. And it is fantastic. I can guarantee you that. So sign up as a drivers club member and you'll have first, first access to that stuff as well. Okay. Uh, super interesting. Um, way more conspiratorial than I ever imagined. Right. Um, so we were kind of like sad that oh we're gonna we're gonna basically kill the lore and the mystery of this curse. But it almost is more. It is more interesting. The, so like the the death curse is a little bit less obviously. Right. But like, where's the car? What did Barris do with the car? Where right. is it? Is it it's buried in between some other walls? Other mystery. I, if you know what I would do it was it was Bellingham, Washington. I would be going through. Um, building permits yep. and, comparing, figure out. and comparing them to the original blueprints to figure out <laughs> which one is about 10 by 8 smaller <laughs> than go. it used to be. If anybody finds it using well, that, I'm going to sue you because like, it was my idea. Like Lee was saying, which car is it? Is it the reproduction car that Barris created because the old one was too... Well, it sounds like the old one was really decrepit, and they just kind of started adding on to it. Yeah, or there's a whole second chassis is something, too, that I've heard. Yeah, but it would be really, really hard to crash one and have it look like the pictures. <laughs> you know, like, I do know what you mean, but they had the two by fours apparently. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it it is fascinating, and I'm excited to see what becomes of this because, as he said, the story is not going to die. Well, very. Uh, I'm very thankful to our listeners who t- turned us on to lead. We know who turned us on to on to lead. I should look it up. Yeah, but anyway, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We get great feedback from you guys. You know, we we love talking to you on social media. Don't ever stop. And uh, it's the relationship we have with you guys is awesome. And it's an in- integral to what we do it, week to week. It totally is. All right, guys. We, uh, I don't know what's going on next week. Um, you've got to come up with something because you promised me you would. Uh, I, I did this week and last week. I know, but I said because you have a kid and your life uh-huh. is harder than mine. I said <laughs> technically, you, even though I have two kids, yeah. you have a newborn baby. Uh-huh. So it's a little harder for you to get away. Right. So I said, I will come down on Tuesdays to oh, make your life easier. Yes. yes if okay. I was wondering with, where you're going with this. Yes. So it's, your life's harder. So also do this. No, <laughs> no it's just, I, it's, yes. it's an extra you day are of driving accommodating for me. me. Therefore I will come up with our next episode. And I, I I'm have contributing a an hour and a half of my life every week to your life being easier. Thank you. So come up with something by <laughs> Tuesday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, guys. Note. We will see you next week. Take, Take care. care. <laughs>